What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning into Demo Day. I'm your host, Sean Goldfan, CEO of Coefficient Labs. And on today's show, we'll be interviewing Todd Grover, an investor at World Innovation Lab, also known as Will. Todd joined Will in 2019 and is focused on direct investments in software, fintech, and other emerging technologies. Prior to joining Will, Todd was with Morgan Stanley's Technology Investment Banking Group in Menlo Park, where he worked on several transactions in M&A and capital markets, including Uber's initial public offering in May 2019. Earlier in his career, Todd spent time at Google in sales strategy and operations and worked as a management consultant. Todd received a BS from UCLA and MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. On today's show, we'll cover Todd's biggest takeaways from working at Google, two unique aspects of VC investing that you should know about, and three important startup trades that VCs value. Without further ado, let's jump into Demo Day. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today on Demo Day. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for having me, Sean. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, me too. So uh, Todd comes to us from Will uh, Ventures, you know, World Innovation Labs. And one of the coolest aspects of this fund in particular is that you guys have really, you know, cornered yourself as a fund that helps to bridge the gap between the United States and funds that are here, as well as kind of moving into the Asian and I, I believe the, the Japanese markets. And I think that, you know, we always start the podcast off by really getting to understand sort of the why behind it. You know, you could have done so many different things with your career and you've chosen to be an investor and to help, you know, startups and entrepreneurs effectively attain their goals. Why is this something that you're so passionate about? Why, why has this profession been the thing that you've really, you know, spent the last years of your life, you know, making happen? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a perfect place to start. And I think you, you framed it really well in terms of our positioning as a firm as being sort of a bridge or a conduit between sort of Japan and not only the U.S., but I think globally, um, sort of all of the different nations around the world that are doing things that are interesting in technology, which today is is uh, is pretty exciting because that really is, is a global phenomenon at this point. It's no longer sort of uh, held here in Silicon Valley. Um, the monopoly is over. Uh, so anyway, why is it so interesting to me? I mean, I think maybe just to step back and give a little bit of the history of the firm in context. So, so we were founded in 2014. Um, as a growth stage venture firm. And our founder, Gen Isayama, was born and raised in Japan, um, came over to Silicon Valley for, for business school here at Stanford, and then went into venture capital after, after business school and was so enamored with the ethos of, of what Silicon Valley, and, and not just Silicon Valley in a metaphorical sense, really the ethos of technology around the innovation, the disruption, the, the rate of change, and, and also just culturally things like um, being almost encouraging or at the very least accepting of failure um, is something that's so fundamentally different than what he had experienced in Japan, um, particularly in a business context where it's a little bit more of a conservative uh, culture um, and things just move a little bit slower. So, so he became sort of enamored with what he was seeing here and, and he started this fund with a a really interesting and, and compelling, at least I found it really compelling mission of, hey, how do we sort of 
export or proselytize the things that he's seeing here in Silicon Valley and the things that, that technology is known for being you know, phenomenal at and bring it back to Japan, which, you know, you think about Japan, it's, it's a fascinating kind of macroeconomic story. It's, it's, it's a massive country, a massive market. You know, I think one of the things that we always hit on up front when we're talking to new companies and new potential investments um, is, you know, why is Japan interesting? Well, look, if you're going to build a, a transformational global public technology company, then Japan as a market has to be on your roadmap. It just does. It's too big. It's too important. Um, there's 120 plus million people there. It's it's uh, incredibly um, forward leaning with respect to technology adoption. I think I found that sort of surprising. You kind of would expect that on the consumer side, where smartphone penetration is really high, internet penetration is really high, but also on the enterprise side, I, I think they're they're moving to the cloud pretty quickly. AWS, GCP, Azure, the public cloud vendors are. are seeing a lot of adoption at a pretty rapid clip and you know the market is just it's just huge it's um it's something that you need to be thoughtful about so the mission of helping um organizations in japan sort of come up the technology adoption curve be more forward-leaning in terms of how they think about technology not only importing it from other vendors here in silicon valley but also creating it themselves and and doing some corporate innovation work you know that's most of what our focus is and really what our mission is at the highest level and i think that's it's pretty it's pretty, pretty differentiated i think within venture uh, within the ecosystem um and maybe one thing just to maybe kind of uh kind of land the plane here to, to, to really understand our, our firm, you know, you sort of have to understand our LP base. And it's kind of a weird place to start when you're talking about a firm, but our LP, our LP base, excuse me, is really the foundation of our competitive advantage. I think when I think about Will and what makes us different than all the other venture firms out there, because our LP base um, is made up of 30 different entities, one of which is the Japanese government, but the other 29 are all, um, Japanese uh, organizations, and these are large multinational uh, uh, entities. So I think of the 29, 11 of them are in the Fortune 500. So if you've never even spent a moment of your life thinking about sort of the Japanese business ecosystem, these would be names that you would recognize. So, and it's across a multitude of different verticals. So everything in, you know, in consumer, we have LPs like Sony, in automotive, we have LPs like Nissan and Suzuki. Um, in kind of convenience and retail, we have LPs like 7-Eleven, uh, and then financial services, Mizuho, insurance, Tokyo Marina, and the list kind of goes on and on. Wow. So it's it's really, really different and unique, and it's got this high-level mission and vision statement that I found really, really interesting, and so that was what kind of compelled me to, to join, and I'm, an, and I'm an investor here in the team. I sit in the U.S. We have an investment team in both Tokyo and, and in the U.S., um, and I joined, I think, a little over two years ago now, and time flies. So yeah, that, that hopefully gives you a just kind of high-level view of, of uh, our firm, because I know it is a little bit unique and, and um, uh, different relative to some other firms that maybe some folks are familiar with. Yeah, well, we'll have more time to dive into the, the fund itself and the thesis, but just to kind of hone in on you and like how we got to, you know, to this place, bring us into your world, like where'd you grow up and, you know, even uh, kind of, uh, you know, taking off of where you grew up, what did you do as, as a kid? Like, did, were you very into sports? Were you into education? Were you into business? Like what, what were like the early days like for you as you started to grow up? 
Oh man, um, that's funny. So it's an interesting question. I, I'm trying to frame it in a way that's not super boring because it's not super interesting. I mean, I, so I grew up, I grew up, uh, I'm from California and I, I grew up in the central coast of California, which geographically is like very close to Silicon Valley and San Francisco and a lot of interesting things that were happening in technology at the time in the 90s. Um, but like metaphorically, I could not have been any further away. Like I, I a single mom, public school teacher, taught uh, uh, elementary school when I was growing up. And really the guiding light for me, like there were some sports and stuff, but it was just like education. Like you can do what you want. Like, there's a lot of stuff out there to do. My mom, it wasn't, she still doesn't understand what I do. I don't think she's understood any of I've ever had, which um, she shouldn't have to by any means. Um, but yeah, so it was just like, you know, get good grades and figure out the rest. So, so I kind of stumbled my way through high school and into college. I went to UCLA. So I was like, hopefully a lot of time in California, you probably get a sense. Yeah. But central, central coast is a lot different too. It's like, it's like a lot different than, than NorCal and it's a lot different than Los Angeles. You know, it, where, where were you on the central coast, like near Pismo or, or Santa Barbara? Oh yes. Pismo, Santa Barbara. Yes. You, you know, uh, I was, I grew up in Santa Maria, which is probably the least, the least attractive area to live in that whole region. <laughs> but I love it. I go back all, all the time. I have a, I have a, a son now, so I bring him to, to see his grandma every chance he gets. Um, but yeah, so, so I went to UCLA. I was, I was a pre-med uh, because I just didn't have any guidance, right? Like my, my interest in medicine and biology was driven by like my ability to Google like which jobs have the highest salary. Oh, mm -hmm. doc, like maybe I'll do that, you know? Um, so it's one of those things. And then, you know, as I went through school, realized probably not a good fit. Did a couple of internships, didn't really jive with the hospital setting necessarily. Um, and so I, I was lucky enough to, to stumble into consulting, uh, which is a good place to start if you don't know anything about anything, quite frankly. Um, so I spent three years in, in at a strategy consulting firm, which was great for good foundation, good business acumen, um, good at teaching you, particularly early on, how to think through kind of large, very complex problems and breaking them down into easier things to, to kind of work through. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, challenges with consulting, too, and there's a lot of critics. I think a lot of them, rightfully so, because there's just no accountability. You kind of are making recommendations, slap on the desk, slap on the table, you know, client, and you're not doing the implementation or the execution of it, which is really the hard part. So I stayed in consulting long enough to, to realize, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was talking about you know what I mean like kind of gets that awareness of like oh I'm getting pretty good at like spinning stories but I don't actually have an understanding of what I'm talking about so I decided to leave um came up to the Bay Area for the first time finally got introduced to technology and what was happening here um I joined Google uh in 2014 2015 on the go-to-market side so that was a good um introduction not only into technology but also into all the various ways that businesses actually work, um, all the fun with cross-functional teams and large organizations and trying to navigate some of those things, but also like more transferable skills, like um, you know how to optimize a funnel from lead to opportunity to close deal, how to think through Salesforce organization, is it by vertical, is it by geo, is it by customer size, how do we think through that? And then most importantly, perhaps, is, is how to think through kind of Salesforce incentivization, which is was the most fascinating thing that I did there. It was also the most contentious thing. Um, 
you know, how do people get paid? How do we think about bonuses? How should we incentivize for new product launches? That type of stuff. So, so that's been that's kind of the grounding in the operational skill set that I have to the extent that I have one. Um, what was what would you say were some of like your biggest takeaways from working at a company like Google? I mean, I, I think that you know, I, I. I I know that certainly over the last 10 years, you know, working at Facebook, working at Google, working at some of these, um, you know, amazing kind of key technology companies, uh, it's great for your resume, but you also have the opportunity to surround yourself with such great people. Were there any like key takeaways from working at such a great company that you now have been able to like almost use in how you assess startups for your investment strategies? Yeah, totally. No, it's it's a it's a great question because I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of um, you know one of the benefits of working at an organization like that is just the people that you have the opportunity to interact with and work with and um, build relationships with in a meaningful way. I mean, there's just so much incredible talent that the Facebooks and the Googles and the Amazons um, and the Apples kind of attract and and then also retain. Quite frankly. Um, I think for me, Samir, just the reason I decided to leave is because, you know, there's also the reality of the fact that when you work at an organization that has 100,000 people, there's days when it feels like it has 100,000 people and it's just like, oh man, it is, it is tough to, to, to get things done at a, at a rate or a pace that I, I perhaps uh, preferred. Um, but I think in terms of how I evaluate startups, I mean, it did help me because Google at the time when I was there, I'm sure they've even come a very long way since then in the last six, seven years, you know, was very sophisticated in how they measured, monitored, evaluated, and managed sort of all the different go-to-market pieces of the business. I mean, it was an incredibly efficient and sophisticated machine, particularly in the part of the business where I was, which was the, the advertising business, mostly focused on small and medium businesses. So having that very metrics, quantitative uh, focused approach kind of um, from day one for me has been very helpful as an investor because quite frankly, those are the metrics that I care a lot about today, which I think is a little bit different than someone who maybe has a purely financial background, where from the financial background, you're thinking about um, things like what's your revenue, what's your growth rate, what are your retention rates, what's your churn. Um, I think for me, I almost orient a little bit higher up the funnel, which I think perhaps is a little bit is, is, is interesting or, or at least unique to some extent where I care more about like, let's talk through the different sales cycle. What are your milestones? How are you moving things to the funnel? What's the velocity? What are the holdups? Where do people pull out? And so that I think was helpful having been at Google um, and has kind of informed the way that I look at, at businesses today. Um, yeah. That's, that's awesome. And <clears throat> when, when you decided to get out of Google, I, I think that there's a lot of people listening that have either come from like a consulting background or are currently working at a, you know, a place like Pinterest or Amazon, like they've been able to acquire some wealth because they've been now working at these companies for the last several years. How did you know that it was time to move on from Google? And, and is there any sort of story behind how you transitioned from like a big company like Google into investing? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a few steps maybe in between um, because I actually left Google not to go to another company or to an investing firm. I left to go to business school. Um, wow. And I think, you know, by nature, I'm a little bit of an impatient person. <laughs> 
<laughs> to some That's extent. Our most investors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was kind of one of those things where you, you sort of, you're at a big company, you kind of see the path lined out in front of you, you can continue to do your job and, and be fine. And financially, you, you will do okay. I think, I mean, the stock has continued to appreciate and I probably would have worked out just fine. But like, you know, it's kind of one of those things where like it's kind of antsy and I'm getting to the point where I got to make a decision here. It's, it's I, I want to work in an earlier stage company. And I actually thought I would work in an earlier stage tech company in an operational capacity, quite frankly. Um, but I have to go to business school. And then when I got to business school, um, you know, I was taking some classes in finance and I got talked into going to an investment banking, which is, I, I struggle with it because it's like, I'm, I'm kind of tipping my hand to some extent because you can tell my like tolerance for risk. Like I've now been at a management consulting firm and then I went to a huge technology company and now I'm gonna go to an investment <laughs> bank. It's like, wow, but <laughs> on earth could you be any more cliche or boring? Um, but I got really fascinated because there was a couple of groups in banking that worked solely with technology clients and they were primarily um, on the capital market side. So kind of IPO or initial public offering prep. And that was something that I was always very fascinated with and, and um, had always tracked and followed. And, and, and the one continuity throughout all this, which I may have touched on why it's, you know, why I eventually made my way into investing was there was always an interest in technology, just sort of that's what I was reading on the weekends and at nights. And I was always kind of keeping up with various trends. I just thought it was pretty fascinating, um, all the various things that were happening at the time. And it's, it's been such an exciting time in technology the last 10, 15 years, I think, arguably the most exciting time ever, uh, you know, given the, the rise of the internet and software and mobile and cloud computing and open source, et cetera. Um, but anyway, so I went business school and then bank. So two very, very boring things. And then I transitioned to investing from there. But what I took, the banking experience was helpful because I think the financial, I talked a little bit about the operational side and how I think about right. from a metric side. The finance piece is also foundational and pretty important for people, I think, who are looking at um, venture because we are a growth stage firm. So we're more series B onwards when you have to have real traction, real product market fit, and there are things to evaluate. And, um, from a financial and quantitative perspective. And so I think having that grounding helped me sort of break into venture. And, and you know, it was it was pretty serendipitous. Like I said, I, I was thinking operational. I knew investing was a fascinating, um, a fascinating career and a fascinating industry, but I didn't necessarily think I'm going to go to a bank with the intention of going into investing. It was much more, I'm going to go to a bank do it for two years, realize, wow, this is super not sustainable or particularly enjoyable. But I learned a lot and there's some really smart people. And good, I have good things to say about the, the bank that I was at. I won't say the name, um, but it wasn't something where I was going into it with five to 10 years uh, with the intention of staying for five to 10 years. Um, and then when I left, I was able to kind of pivot over and, and, and serendipitously got in touch with Will and, and heard the story that I kind of outlined up front from Gen about, hey, here's the mission, here's what we're working toward. It's kind of this higher purpose um, organization that's doing some pretty unique things. And that was what compelled me to, to sort of shift over and, and join here. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, you have a, kind of a more non-traditional path in putting together different pieces where like you built like foundation around like top of funnel, advertising strategy, conversion-based strategy, which is, you know, typically more associated with earlier stage startups, like, you know, seed series A, sometimes series B, but now you also have the experience of like bigger financial markets, which once you get to the series B, series C levels, you really need to have kind of the balance between the two. 
when you moved over into the full investing role, what was that like for you? Like, what was the transition? Um, did it have mostly to do with the hours that you were working or the types of projects you were working on? Like, what was the key difference between moving from like an investment banking role into this like new, fun, exciting kind of world that's like investing in startups? Yeah, I think there are probably two, two things that, um, I had to sort of navigate. Um, I think one was the fact that as an investor, particularly today, you know, you are you are in sales. <laughs> like there's no there's no mistake about it. I'd never really been in frontline sales before. So getting out, doing outbound, um, meeting people, putting yourself out there was was a bit of a different experience for me. And and you know, the challenge there is not only are you in sales, but you're selling something that's you're selling capital, so it's, it's a commodity, and uh, there's a whole heck of a lot of it floating around the ecosystem at the moment. So you're selling a, a commodity for which there's a pretty dramatic oversupply. Um, so that was something that I had to I had to kind of adjust to, and, and uh, I had to spend some time kind of trying to improve. And I'm it's, a, it's very much a work in process, as you can probably tell. Um, you can obviously get a lot better uh, at being kind of in the sales mindset at all times. I think the second thing, which kind of goes back to what I was saying before about the patience uh, or being rather impatient. I mean, it, it is a different pace compared to banking where banking, I mean, things were so fast twitch in you know, a lot of the work that you're doing is not super interesting or value add or going to go or turn into anything meaningful, but you at least get like the dopamine payoff of like, oh, we went to the meeting and the meeting went well, or the meeting didn't go, it didn't matter. Like you did a meeting, checkbox, move on to the next thing. Venture is different. I mean, it, it's like, it's an industry that's just sort of defined by long cycles and not just like, I'm not talking about like technological cycles. I'm talking about like operationally, internally, it's a long sales cycle. There's a relationship building period that you wanna ideally have with the entrepreneur. Obviously the fundraising portion of that has been compressed to some extent in certain, for certain companies and certain, in certain verticals. Um, but, you know, as me thinking through how do I build sort of my own, um, potential book of business or portfolio, however you want to frame it. Like the sales cycle, it just takes a long time. It's ambiguous. And there aren't those like milestones. There's not things that I can measure that give me comfortability on like meet this person every 60 days. And then at the next meeting, you deliver this and then you do like the product demo. It's like, that's not how it works. So it's, that's, that's an adjustment. And then on the other side of that, even after you make the investment, the feedback cycle is incredibly long. Like, hey, like I, years in some cases. Yeah, right? exactly. So like I've been doing this for two years and like I'll have any semblance of understanding of whether or not I'm any good at it in like a decade, which is like kind of weird, right? Like it's like, oh man, that's a, that's a different uh, different way to orient your mind. So those are probably the two things. I mean, the first is, is uh is you know you gotta realize that this is a sales job and then the second is that you gotta you gotta have some patience. Um, yeah, I've heard it almost described sometimes as like hurry up and wait, where like you're in this like big like hurry to get the deal done and to like get the term sheet signed, and then all of a sudden you transition into this waiting game where like you don't really have those clear, you know, like you mentioned milestones. And uh, I remember like vividly going and talking to uh, Will Sue, who uh, is one of the managing partners at Mucker here in Los Angeles. And it was the day that Honey had announced their acquisition. It was like a big win for Mucker. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, Will, like, 
this is so cool. This is so exciting. Like you must be so pumped. And while like, he's a very like humble, you know, reserved person, he kind of was like, you know, it is really exciting, but it's not as tangible as you would like imagine because he's like, sometimes when you hit a home run in baseball, you get that feeling of like touching first base, touching second base, touching third base. And then like you get to the home plate and it's like, it's quick, it's fast. But in the investing world, he's like, I had a coffee with these guys almost 10 years ago. And you almost <laughs> lose the like, that feeling of the connectivity because it's such a long cycle for you to go through. And for someone like you're saying, that's, you know, like what's next, what's next, what's next. You really have to like train your mind into that, like hurry up and wait where, you know, everything's happening very quickly, but at the other end, it's also happening very slowly. And, you know, being able to like manage the in-between seems to be like where the wins are. Totally. Yeah, no, fully, fully agreed. That makes, that makes complete sense. <laughs> now, when it comes to like the types of companies that will invest in, uh, I know obviously there are some connectivity between like the U.S. and Japanese markets or Japanese markets in other countries, but what, when it comes to sort of like the vertical or the industries that you invest in, are you guys fairly like agnostic or what, what are you looking for in the companies that you're trying to build relationships with? Gotcha. Yeah, I think so. So maybe the, the first part of that um, in terms of vertical focus. So we are um, fairly broad, I think. Um, and a lot of that is driven by our LP base and the fact that they are across verticals. They have interest in a whole bunch of different things. Um, so that manifests itself in our uh, kind of strategy or defined focused areas, if you will, as sort of the software, um, fintech, e-commerce marketplaces, as well as some emerging areas, um, things like space, digital health, um, quantum computing, et cetera. So, so it is very, very broad. And the reason for that is, is again, it's, it's not like haphazard. We just want to invest in anything. It's like now we're trying to be thoughtful work with our LPs and focus our efforts where they have interest. I think one big new area that I didn't mention is, is sustainability. You know, they are really, they're being, being our LPs, are really almost dragging us in that direction because they are so interested in it, so focused on it, so, um, you know, motivated to getting to carbon neutral, which I think is super cool. And it's not, it wasn't necessarily the capability that we had in-house in terms of having a lot of subject matter expertise on it. But over the last year to two years, we've gotten up the learning curve very quickly, working collaboratively with them. And now that's a real focus for our fund and it's going to be so as, um, as we move forward. So, so that's kind of the, the vertical piece of it. Um, you know, the second piece, which is, you know, how do we evaluate companies? What makes us excited to, to sort of invest, I think, fundamentally? Um, so because we are mostly kind of Series B onwards, we do take a pretty quantitative approach to it in addition to all the other stuff the product market team stuff we, we look at that as well but it's it's um it is true that we put more of an emphasis uh and a focus on on the metrics and you know across all of those different verticals that i mentioned there's a whole bunch of different business models right there's there's SaaS business models there's marketplace models they, they all have different kind of nuances and flavors to them but I think fundamentally, and this is something that I find really interesting about my role here, and one of the other reasons that I joined, um, is the fact that I get to look at businesses across that whole spectrum. Mm. 
And, you know, when you start to like step back and say, okay, well, how am I going to look at a business that's an e-commerce marketplace and then in the next day, look at a SaaS company, you know, you kind of get to the, what I call like the atomic units of the business, which is really just acquisition and retention. Yeah. Um, every business fundamentally boils down to that. And I don't just mean like acquisition and retention in like the, the revenue driving sense, but I also mean in the cost sense, right? So acquisition, you can think about how many customers are you adding? What's the willingness to pay or the, the average selling price? But it's also like, what's the cost to acquire? Like how is the sales and marketing efficiency look um, and how is it trending? And then on the retention side, that manifests itself in sort of, you know, your expansion or your turn rate, what sort of engagement or usage are you seeing on the product front? And then also like, what's the ongoing cost to serve? You know, a SaaS business, when you think about those two dynamics looks pretty uh, sort of okay on the acquisition front. It's not great, it's pretty expensive to land a customer and you gotta do a lot of investment upfront to, to build the product um, in a way that's compelling to, to a customer to, to wanna purchase it. But then on the retention side, it looks really good. You know, they tend to have negative net churn or net expansion, whatever you want to call it. And the ongoing cost is pretty is pretty low. The marginal cost of software is is uh, de minimis. Could, you know, juxtapose that against a marketplace where, hey, the acquisition and the initial CAC may look okay, and the initial purchase may be fine, but then other the customers is too high. Yeah, like what is what? Yeah, the churn is too high. What are the switching costs to do something else? Are you having to reinvest marketing dollars to reactivate the same customer? So it's it's like there's different dynamics and there's different definitions of like what good is and what would make us interested in investing. But it, it's all kind of fundamentally the same on some yeah. level. And then I think when you one of the cool things that, that's happened over the last five to ten years, I think it's still. It, it feels very commonplace now to look at a business like in a cohort controlled way. I don't actually think, I think it's still like relatively new. Like I don't think 15, 20 years ago, it was it was as frequently used as a, as a means of evaluating the business as it is today. But looking at all those metrics in a cohort controlled way, when we get really excited about investing, it's when there's a set of cohorts and the performance is improving. Either it's, it's improving or it's, or it's kind of staying the same. Because I think, you know, Typically in businesses, what we see is as you grow and scale, start acquiring more marginal customers outside of your core early adopters, then the dynamics tend to look a little worse from a lifetime value to acquisition cost perspective, which is to say either your cap starts to increase as you start to saturate your your um, your marketing channels, the kind of retention of the turn tends to look a little bit worse at the grade because they're used, they're not using it as frequently as as some of your initial early adopters. I mean, the perfect example of this, I suppose, is, is like um, is Uber, where hey, initially started in urban metropolises, that's where usage was really high. That was the core use case. Those customers loved it, used it all the time. As you start to expand that business to like the suburbs where people have cars and the infrastructure has parking and you don't need to use that service like that as frequently, like you're acquiring them in later cohorts, those cohorts are just gonna look not as strong from a like LTV to CAC perspective as the early ones. Doesn't mean it can't be a good business, Uber, perfect example, perfectly fine business. Um, but then you have to look at other things like the size of the market and uh, the ability to continue to add new products and, and things like that. So, so hopefully that gives you a good, a flavor of how we sort of think through our own diligence and, and evaluating businesses and, and what makes us really excited. Again, like if, if your cohort improvements is your cohort, excuse me, performance is either remaining consistent or improving, I, I, that's something where we would be leaning forward. Like, this is a business we have to 
have to invest in because something is happening here, either a network effect or economy of scale or just getting up the adoption curve, the technology adoption curve very, very quickly. That, that is pretty unique uh, based on what I've sort of seen in the ecosystem so far. Now, now, Todd, investing at Series B and above is a lot different than investing in that pre-seed, seed, you know, even Series A to some regard. While I understand that the founding team is always going to be important to like, what, no matter what stage you're in, can you talk a little bit more about like what you look for in the teams that you're investing? Because I, I would imagine at Series B, you know, they're not just like, you know, two to four person teams or even five to 10. And in many cases, they could have dozens, if not hundreds of employees by that point. So um, what, what are you looking for? And are you able to identify these from the founders themselves? Or, or does it just move much more to a quantitative world where you're looking at numbers, retention, acquisition? What, what's it like for you to essentially bring people through this this funnel, if you will, um, for your own investment thesis. Yeah, um, no, you're, you're you're spot on in terms of the the diligence process differs depending on the stage, or at least I mean, if you're still looking at the same fundamental elements, you're just the weighting is a little different. That's probably a better way to say it. You're weighting more heavily on the quantitative metrics in the later stages. Um, but in terms of evaluating like uh, founding teams and not just the founder itself, but also the executives, you know, who do you have running your sales? Who do you have running your customer success over? Who do you have running product? Um, you know, that is a real, I think that's a real challenge. I mean, I think it's tough to do. I can tell you what we look for, like qualitatively in terms of the attributes, like we want someone who's resilient. We want someone who's going to be able to sell their story in a compelling way, not just because it helps with raising capital, sure, but it also, you got to pitch that same story to employees that you're trying to recruit and hire and get to join you um, at, the, at the company. Um, and so I think that the challenge, in addition to, I guess the one other thing maybe to touch on is, is you know, you want to have some sort of like unique insight, earned secret, whatever you want to call it, subject matter, knowledge, and experience. We do we do prefer that for sure. Um, but I guess the challenge in today's environment where everything has kind of gone remote, you know, I don't know about you guys, but like for the foreseeable future, we're probably going to stay remote, at least for like initial meetings and screenings and things like that. Um, you know, it can be difficult to suss that out uh, in a virtual world. So, so we, we try to to the extent that we can, um, you know, rely on reference checks and and looking a little bit at like what's going on with the background and history and you know if you put stuff on the internet, like a venture capitalist is going to find it. <laughs> uh, that is still the reality. Yeah, if they're on a podcast, or you have a Twitter, like someone will find it and read it, and some analyst or associate at some firm they will read everything you've ever put on. And it's just kind of part of the diligence process. But I think at the highest level, that's you know that's really what we what we try to aspire to to find in the in the teams and founders that we that we um that we back sort of resiliency, subject matter knowledge, ability to recruit. So I think the last thing maybe that I always try to ask um, is is a pretty it's just the simple like do, would I work for this person like would would I be excited to come in and and, and kind of spend every single day working um, working hand in hand with them and and you know for the most part. You know that is a that is a pretty important question. If, if the answer is no, then even if the metrics are there, and this is even at the later stage, 
um, you know, that can be something that causes us to, to decide not to not to invest because that's it's just so, so critical um, at the early stages. Now, I want to take us backwards just for a, a brief, you know, minute here, but I always like to ask whenever I have a guest that has completed an MBA program, mm. uh, I always say, like, would you have done it the same way? You know, like, it, would you go back and do the same MBA uh, and go through that whole program again? Or do you feel like now having gone through it, that it was almost like something that held you back from potentially like going to the next chapter? Oh man, I, so I think if you, the thing I struggle with a little bit and objectively evaluating like the MBA experience is I, as I've said, I tend to be pretty quantitative. And if you just do like the business case, on the investment relative to the return, it's uh, it's hard to make the numbers work in the first few years out of business school. I think like you know, there's a there's a huge benefit of sort of the people that you meet there, the experiences that you have, the growth that you um, go through as an individual, not necessarily in a professional context, but in a personal context. I think the things that I took away from business school were were super important and meaningful to me in a way that may not have propelled my career um, necessarily, but helped me think through kind of where I wanted to go in life. And I, I don't know necessarily how that fits into like the ROI calculation, if you know what I mean. Sure. Um, but also, um, you know, I think there are things that I could have done better while I was at business school. Like I still would go for sure. Um, but, you know, I it's funny, I, I was just talking about this with someone the other day like the notion of like I think there were 850 people in my class and I graduated with like 22 Twitter followers and it was just like which is just sort of fun. it's like it's still it's silly right it's, it's 100 I think I'd say it to be sort of flippant but like it's also a good example of like I, I knew kind of the way that tech worked but like the, the best way to understand how tech works is like actually go work in the industry and like I, I think there was a little bit of a disconnect so I think I would have come into business school with more of my eyes wide open to the fact that hey it's it's a good place to spend two years, but there's going to be a disconnect between sort of the reality of operating in a professional context and operating in business and operating in the technology industry specifically because things move so quickly and like the curriculum that you're going to go through at a business school program. So, you know, if I had my eyes wide open to that and been more aware of that, I think I would have uh, changed the way in which I sort of navigated those two years but having said that um i don't necessarily regret it i think i think there will be Even another opportunity you would have just done you've been it sounds like what when you say having my eyes wide open like being more intentional is that is that what you're saying like to be very intentional about like you know which classes that you're taking as opposed to just like going through the program uh, it, it, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm curious. Is that is that what you're saying? That if you would have done it again, you would have tried to plan it a little differently. I think I think so. Um, I don't necessarily think that what you just said wouldn't have applied to any other stage of my career as well. I think you know, from my, my advice to people who are contemplating, like, should I go to business school or should I go get another job or or, or whatever. You know, I think to really maximize the value of business school, you have to have an appreciation and understanding of the value of time. And what I mean by that is in business school, you have a lot of free 
capacity and time that you don't have when you're working 50, 60, 70 hours a week at a job. Um, and so, you know, if you're someone who can appreciate the value of that time, and then also, I guess, as an extension, leverage that time to the fullest extent, then I think it makes a lot of sense. And there's like the example of people who found companies in business school, like that's a phenomenal time to try to start a company. You yeah. know, you're the absolute position, I think, to some extent, um, or in certain ways. But if you're not someone who kind of has that maturity to where you kind of can one, appreciate the value of the time and two, make sure that you're making the most use of it in an intentional way, to your point, then I don't necessarily know if it's worth the investment. And what I'm saying about my reflection on my own experience, and I, I, I'm trying not to judge myself too harshly, but I don't know if there's any other way to, 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 to frame it. I don't think I, I necessarily had that as much as I would have liked in hindsight. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Well, it's it's one of those things that's like a lot easier to to like process after the fact than it is when you're there. You know, you know what I mean? And like especially with like the experience you have now and um and just like, you know, being like ready and and it's like unless someone kind of nudges you, it's hard to even think about building a business in business. You're like that's not why I'm there, right? So you have to kind of like go into it a little bit knowing that like oh wow i could get access to mentors and access to venture capitalists just because of the fact that i'm currently in business school like i i always when i was an undergrad would you know use that to my advantage of like meeting alumni or getting you know in contact with people that just wanted to talk to me because i was a student and and so i i think that uh they don't really teach you that going into business school right they, it's more focused on like once you get out but but you don't realize how crucial those years are while you're there totally totally the student card when you can play it is a hugely uh useful <laughs> useful card people are very willing to take meetings and things like that so yeah no i think that that makes a lot of sense yeah. now now coming back to the fund itself what what is like the average check size because I, I i would imagine at a series b you know we're not talking you know tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars like is there a kind of a typical investment size or check size that most companies are coming to you looking for yeah i mean the, the size of rounds it's been interesting even in the time that i've been here over the last two years i mean the size of rounds uh in you know, as well as valuations have increased pretty significantly, even at the Series B and the Series A. Um, whereas, indeed, I just saw what we had a uh, we had a guest on the show a couple about a month or two ago that I just saw on LinkedIn. One of his portfolio companies just raised a seventeen million dollars series uh, a seventeen million dollars seed round, and I was like, what? what? You know, it's, it's it's wild right now, but uh, it definitely changes the dynamic when you, when I first got into startups, the seed round was like $200,000 to a million dollars, you know, not 4 million or 8 million or $20 million that it, it seems as though uh, things have gotten like way, way more out of hand, but sorry, I, I digress. I didn't mean to take, take away. No, no, yeah, no, you're totally right. Cause it sort of works its way back to the ecosystem. And I'm not sure exactly which way, like the causality is flowing. If it's like, you know, 
public market valuations go up, later stage valuations go up, that feeds its way earlier stage, or if it starts at the earlier stage, it, it goes down. Um, but yeah, for us, it's, you know, 10 to $30 million is our typical check size. Wow. Um, to your point, I think the $30 million number there was probably more for the CD or pre-IPO type rounds. But I think the reality is as rounds continue to get bigger, as capital continues to proliferate throughout the system, as you know, you see these crossover funds moving earlier and earlier, I'm talking about the Tigers, SoftBank, et cetera. Um, you know, we needed to write larger checks to be competitive and to get a space on on the cap table. And so that's that's kind of what we don't do. I, I would say maybe beyond just the, the mechanics of hey, 10 to 30 is sort of the range. Um, you know, we as an investment firm, there's no there's really no ego with us. Like we're 100 percent flexible. We led rounds, we followed in rounds. Um, we're 100 percent willing to work with the entrepreneur, the founder, the CEO to, to figure out where we can fit in in a way that, that makes the most sense and is kind of optimally engineered. So they have the highest probability of success going forward. And I think, you know, given our positioning Japan, you know, there are rounds where we're viewed as very much a strategic investor. And I think we're hundred percent okay with doing that. And if that totally. Because you're saying because because of the LPs that you work with, like yes. because you are connected to Sony and 7-Eleven, like like you're able to offer so much value outside of just like dollars and cents. Totally, totally. And we hundred percent are aware of that and lean into that. And that's really how we how we go about kind of um, uh, selling ourselves, if you will, to sort of the companies that we are trying to invest in. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of the, the general approach. And then in terms of what we actually can do on the services side, it's to your point, I mean, the customer intros are pretty easy when your LPs are, are all these large, attractive Fortune 500 companies. But um, beyond that, it's also having a really kind of broad, robust network in Japan. I mean, we have two thirds of our headcount actually sits in Tokyo. So it's about 20, 25 people who are dedicated wow. to helping our companies, yeah, enter the market, scale the market. Um, we help with hiring. The initial hire is so, so important. Japan is a market you have to be very intentional about. It's a difficult market to, to break into um, as, a, as a foreign firm. So, you know, you want to make sure you have a good set of kind of people on the ground. And that first hire is so incredibly critical. So that's one of the areas that we really pride ourselves on, on being particularly helpful. And then also with like the marketing front, um, we have strong relationships with the Nikkei, which is effectively like the Wall Street Journal of, of Asia and of Japan. Um, so we can get our companies featured in articles and, and things like that. So it's, it's just helpful all across the board, but that that is our primary value add, I think is, is with respect to Japan. And so we really lean into that um, when, it, when it makes sense, when the timing is right for, for companies. That's awesome. That's awesome. And and now when it comes, Todd, to like the sort of industries that you're investing in, I, I know that you'd mentioned that you're fairly broad, like you don't take any one particular stance. Is there a part, is there like a, a category of startup that you personally love? Like when it comes on your desk, it just like your curiosity goes wild. I, I know, um, yeah. And anything that sort of like just resonates with you and what you like to do is just on a personal level. So for me, I um, I think it's 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 hard. I may have mentioned this to you before, but I, I think like hard is the, is not the right word. 
I, I am so interested in so many different things that are happening in the ecosystem today that the variety of companies that I have the, the good fortune to kind of diligence or work with or even just meet and hear the story um, is just a huge feature and not a bug. So I am, I'm fascinated in what's happening in software at all levels of the stack, of stack excuse me, infrastructure, application layer, developer tools, et cetera. Um, I'm fascinated with what's happening in fintech, with embedded to banking as a service to more consumer-facing applications that are going direct. I'm fascinated with what's happening in e-commerce and marketplace and sort of the kind of convergence of social and, and the impact there on what the implications of that will be going forward. Um, and then, of course, there's there's also all the new emerging areas like space and what's happening in sustainability and how folks are, are thinking about all those different new areas. I, I just think all of the technology, and this is probably one of the, candidly, it's a trade-off, right? Like, I don't, I don't go as deep on any one individual area, but I know enough to be dangerous in a lot of different, yeah. different spaces. Um, so that's kind of how I focus now. But what, to, to be candid, when I look at my investments, I've, I've made a couple that are uh, all software companies. The so software is, is mm -hmm. an interesting space. It's, it's a space that makes sense to me. It's the one that I probably have the most familiarity with, quite frankly. Um, we probably diligent, or we probably uh, look at maybe half of the companies that we look at are, are probably software. So that's probably where I'm most familiar. But yeah, I'm fascinated in sort of all the different areas, all the above. Yeah, it sounds like you've sort of, whether you did it intentionally or not, have basically like given yourself like so many different areas to lean into, like from your mom working in like education, then mm -hmm. going and thinking you might want to do med school, then you end up working for like a <laughs> consulting firm where you have like lots of different clients, then going into private banking, it's or investment banking, it's like, you, you know, you have kind of like a love for the game of growth and business. And like, if you tie in like the acquisition and advertising, you like you said, you you're not too deep in any one area, but you can be like a real, you know, player in a lot of different spaces. And if you then like tie the fact that you're helping companies expand into Japan or bring Japanese companies into America, um, you can see why like you're such a, a value add to the to the organization. Um, Todd, it's been so cool having you on the podcast. I can't wait to, you know, spend more time with you guys and, and learn more uh, as the, the months and years progress. But uh, for those that want to get in contact with you and want to like, you know, have a first conversation, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, totally. Um, I am available to, I think my, my email is just Todd at willab, W-I-L-A-B.com. And then on Twitter or or. LinkedIn, any of the above. I'm happy to happy to engage. So yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, Todd, I really uh, enjoyed it too. Hopefully the next time we talk, we'll both be in Tokyo together. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. <laughs> All right. All right, man. Uh, have a great day. And for everyone watching at home, thank you for tuning into Demo Day. I'm Sean Goldfen, CEO of Coefficient Labs. This is Demo Day. Thanks, guys. Peace.